He runs a program most people never heard of, but it's got a $5 billion budget. He's Associate Administrator for the Bureau of Primary Health Care, and that's nested in the Health Resources and Services Administration, itself a component of Health and Human Services. And now the senior executive is a Presidential Rank Award recipient. Jim McRae joins me now. Mr. McRae, good to have you with us. Great to be with you, Tom. And congratulations on that award. Let's talk about the Bureau of Primary Health Care. We can sort of imagine what it does, but why don't you tell us what it does and what the scope of it is? It's more extensive, I think, than people realize. Sure. Well, actually, we're close to $6 billion now. So we're an agency within the Health Resources and Services Administration within the Department of Health and Human Services. And our mission is to provide resources to underserved communities to help support the provision of primary health care in this country. Wow. And so there are a lot of places that lack primary health care, aren't there? Yes, we actually now have a total of about 1,400 community health centers across the country that operate close to 15,000 sites that provide affordable, accessible, basic health care services, including oral health, behavioral health, vision services to medically underserved populations. And today we serve about 30 million people all across the country. And is this delivered through private organizations, nonprofits? What are these 1,400 health centers like in that sense? These are all private, not-for-profit organizations. We have a few public entities, but 95% of these are community-based organizations. And what's unique about these organizations is that they are actually run by the patients themselves. So the governing boards of these organizations actually have to have at least 51% of the board be representative of the patients, um, actual patients of the center. And how do you ensure, and we'll get into the bigger picture here in a minute, but how do you ensure that if it is run by patients that the doctors and the dentists and the psychologists that they hire are the best and most competent they can be? So as part of receiving the federal grants from us, there are some expectations, including related to the clinical quality of care that's provided. All of these organizations must have a quality assurance program. The providers themselves must be licensed. They must meet both federal, state, and local requirements. But the other piece of it is that by having the organizations be run by patients of the center, it actually makes the care more responsive to what the actual needs are in the organization. And one of the things that happens quite a bit is the interaction between the provider staff and the governing boards talking about what are the needs of the patients, how best to respond to those, and really keep a pulse of what's happening in that community. Interesting. So I imagine if they wanted then, the citizen-run board or the patient-run board could say, well, you know what? Nine to five doesn't really work for medicine. What we need is something that opens at 3 p.m. and is there till midnight. And if the doctor is willing to do that, I mean, personally, I don't care where you live, that would be a much better situation. Well, and actually to that end, most of our health centers do offer at least one evening a week and many work on the weekends and actually are responsive. In fact, the board itself is the organization that sets the hours of the organization and they have communicated clearly to the staff and to the providers that we need to be open when people need access to care and that includes evenings and weekends. And if it costs, say, I'm just making this number up, a million dollars a year to operate one of these centers, one of the 15,000 what portion of the operating expenses does HRSA grants cover? So on average, we provide about 20% of the revenues of these organizations. And what the grant is intended to do is to cover the costs that are not covered by other insurance. A significant number of our patients are Medicaid recipients. A significant number are Medicare. We also have some private insurance organizations that serve private insurance people because we're in underserved communities. 
but the remainder of that is covered by the grant itself. And with that grant, there are expectations in terms of the quality of care that's provided, financial accountability. We conduct site visits to make sure that the care is of the highest quality and produces the outcomes that we all want to see. And tell us about yourself. What do you bring to this? Are you a physician by training, a federal program manager, a grant person? Who are you? Well, I am not a physician, but I have been in the federal government for now almost 33 years. I've actually served as the associate administrator for the Bureau of Primary Health Care for a little over 15 years. I worked in the program initially as a young sort of person out of college and really grew up with it and have had the real opportunity to be able to lead this organization for a number of years. And we have seen some significant growth in the program over time. And we're speaking with Jim McRae. He is head of the Bureau of Primary Health Care part of the Health Resources and Services Administration, also a recipient of the Presidential Rank Award. And let me ask you about that. Often we find that there's a specific thing that someone did that garnered this award. What would it have been in your case? Because the White House doesn't put out that information. Well, I think part of this award is definitely for the longevity and having worked across multiple different administrations. And I think the thing that hopefully people have seen from my leadership, but most importantly from the program and these community-based organizations, is that investments are made in these organizations. We do produce results. And so I've had the opportunity to work initially under the Bush administration. They had a big initiative to actually double the number of health center sites in the country. We were able to successfully do that. Under the Obama administration, we actually supported big efforts around the Recovery Act, both making sure that people had health care, but also promoting economic development by establishing new health center sites and facilities. We, of course, have supported the Affordable Care Act during the Obama administration to make sure that even if people have health insurance, to make sure, especially in rural and frontier and inner cities, that people had access to care and they could get it and it was affordable and accessible. During the Trump administration, we really worked on expanding the capacity of health centers to respond to the opioid crisis, expanding the capacity of our health centers to provide medication-assisted treatment. And then most recently in the Biden administration, we've been instrumental in responding to COVID and especially making sure that those communities that have been disproportionately impacted by COVID had access to vaccines, tests, masks, and therapeutics. And so really have had the opportunity over the last four administrations to work very closely with each of them to hopefully deliver results that make a huge impact for medically underserved communities across the country. And you've outlined how the organizations have had to bend and twist and accommodate different health phases, different crises that come along in public health. What about ensuring that the practitioners are up to date with the latest medical practices? Like there's so many little things. Like I've noticed the way dentists give lidocaine. They use different techniques than they used to. Just plunge the needle in there and push. I mean, little things and big things. And how do you ensure that people that are accessing these facilities get the same things people in upper Manhattan also get? Sure. So a couple of things, Tom, that we've done. One is that we have worked with an outside organization to have our health centers recognized as patient-centered medical homes, which is a national quality benchmark. When we started this initiative in 2010, we had less than 1% of our health centers recognized. Now we're close to 80% of our organizations have received this outside quality recognition. 
In addition, we have promoted and supported the training of new residents and students out of medical schools to have the experience working in a community-based setting. As you know, most of medical education today is done in hospitals, but one of the things that we see as critically important is getting residents in medical schools exposure to community-based settings, to serving underserved populations, and practicing in primary care settings. And as we've done that, it not only hopefully increases the capacity of those students to provide primary health care, but it also helps keep our practitioners on the cutting edge of services that are needed. Um, really, that interaction between students and our providers is critical. And the good news is what we see is if students do have that exposure, they're more likely to go into primary health care, um, which is a huge need in this country, but they also are more likely to practice in underserved communities. Right. So part of the job then is almost selling them on the idea that you might be in rural Pennsylvania, rural South Dakota, rural somewhere, and it's not going to be like practicing on the Upper East Side of Manhattan but it can be fulfilling. Absolutely, completely fulfilling. And, you know, you've probably seen the movies like Doc Hollywood, a lot of different activities about what it means in terms of people's personal lives. It's very fulfilling. I will say that the staff that work here in the Bureau of Primary Health Care and, of course, the staff out in our community health centers are so mission-driven and committed to making sure that people, again, have access to affordable, accessible, high-quality primary health care. And what you can see is that it makes a huge difference in their lives. I mean, we're delivering hundreds of thousands of babies every year in communities all across the country. We are helping people control their hypertension, their diabetes, and we're also preventing disease. And that opportunity to see real world what happens and the impact that it's making is really rewarding. And what has kept you in federal senior service all this time? I mean, you could probably triple your salary at one of these health delivering organizations themselves. Well, it's a great question. I would say it's the mission and the people. You know, one of the things that drew me to the Community Health Center program was to see that impact every day. And what has kept me here is that working at the federal level, you can either make it easier or sometimes harder on individuals trying to deliver federal services. And my commitment and my staff's commitment is always, let's try to make it easier to deliver that care. And we've seen that it happens. And as you were talking a little bit earlier, we really work closely with our partners to be flexible in terms of how we approach different issues. And we're committed to working towards the same goals of providing that high-quality health care, eliminating health disparities in this country. And the way I describe it is to be tight on the what, what is it that we're trying to achieve, and looser on the how in terms of how we do it together. That could be the watchword for a lot of federal managers. Jim McRae is head of the Bureau of Primary Health Care in the Health Resources and Services Administration and the recipient of the Presidential Rank Award. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Enjoyed it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking 
earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves 
uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.